Section 30 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 29. The Literature of the Reign, First Survey, Part 4. Passion, it will be seen, counted for little in the works of Dickens and Thackeray. Dickens, indeed, could draw a conventionally or dramatically wicked man with much power and impressiveness, and Thackeray could suggest certain forms of vice with wonderful delicacy and yet vividness. But the passions which are common to all human natures in their elementary moods made but little play in the novels of either writer. Both were in this respect, for all their originality and genius in other ways, highly and even exclusively conventional. There was apparently a sort of understanding in the minds of each, indeed Thackeray has admitted as much in his preface to Pendennis, that men and women are not to be drawn as men and women are known to be, but with certain reserves to suit conventional etiquette. It is somewhat curious that the one only novel writer who during the period we are now considering came into any real rivalry with them was one who depended on passion altogether for her material and her success. The novels of a young woman, Charlotte Bronte, compelled all English society into a recognition not alone of her own sterling power and genius, but also of the fact that profound and passionate emotion was still the stuff out of which great fiction could be constructed. Exaltations, agonies, and love, and man's unconquerable mind were taken by Charlotte Bronte as the matter out of which her art was to produce its triumphs. The novels which made her fame, Jane Eyre and Villette, are positively aflame with passion and pain. They have little variety. They make hardly any pretense to accurate drawing of ordinary men and women in ordinary life, or at all events under ordinary conditions. The authoress had little of the gift of the mere storyteller, and her own peculiar powers were exerted sometimes with indifferent success. The familiar on whom she depended for her inspiration would not always come at call. She had little genuine relish for beauty except the beauty of a weird melancholy and of decay. But when she touched the chord of elementary human emotion with her best skill, then it was impossible for her audience not to feel that they were under the spell of a power rare indeed in our well-ordered days. The absolute sincerity of the author's expression of feeling lent it great part of its strength and charm. Nothing was ever said by her because it seemed to society the right sort of thing to say. She told a friend that she felt sure Jane Eyre would have an effect on readers in general because it had so great an effect on herself. It would be possible to argue that the great strength of the books lay in their sincerity alone that Charlotte Bronte was not so much a woman of extraordinary genius as a woman who looked her own feelings fairly in the face and painted them as she saw them. But the capacity to do this would surely be something which we could not better describe than by the word genius. Charlotte Bronte was far from being an artist of fulfilled power. She's rather to be regarded as one who gave evidence of extraordinary gifts which might with time and care and under happier artistic auspices have been turned to such account as would have made for her a fame with the very chiefs of her tribe. She died at an age hardly more mature than that at which Thackeray won his first distinct literary success, much earlier than the age 
at which some of our greatest novelists brought forth their first completed novels. But she left a very deep impression on her time, and the time that has come, and is coming after her. No other hand in the age of Queen Victoria has dealt with human emotion so powerfully and so truthfully. Hers were not cheerful novels. A cold, grey, mournful atmosphere hangs over them. One might imagine that the shadow of an early death is forecast on them. They love to linger among the glooms of nature, to haunt her darkling wintry twilights, to study her stormy sunsets, to link man's destiny and his hopes, fears, and passions somehow with the glare and gloom of storm and darkness, and to read the symbols of his fate as the foredoomed and passion-wasted Antony did in the cloud-masses that are black vespers pageants. The supernatural had a constant vague charm for Charlotte Bronte as the painful had. Man was to her a being torn between passionate love and the most ignoble impulses and ambitions and common-day occupations of life. Woman was a being of equal passion, still more sternly and cruelly doomed to repression and renunciation. It was a strange fact that in the midst of the splendid material successes and the quietly triumphant intellectual progress of this most prosperous and well-ordered age, when even in its poetry and its romance, passion was systematically toned down and put in thrall to good taste and propriety, this young writer should have suddenly come out with her books, all thrilling with emotion and all protesting in the strongest possible manner against the theory that the loves and hates of men and women had been tamed by the process of civilization. Perhaps the very novelty of the apparition was in great measure a part of its success. Charlotte Bronte did not indeed influence the general public, or even the literary public, to anything like the same extent that Thackeray and Dickens did. She appeared and passed away almost in a moment. As Miss Martineau said of her, she stole like a shadow into literature and then became a shadow again. But she struck very deeply into the heart of the time. If her writings were only, as has been said of them, a cry of pain, yet they were such a cry as once heard lingers and echoes in the mind forever after. Godwin declared that he would write in Caleb Williams a book which would leave no man who read it the same as he was before. Something not unlike this might be said of Jane Eyre. No one who read it was exactly the same as he had been before he opened its weird and wonderful pages. No man could well have made more of his gifts than Lord Lytton. Before the coming up of Dickens and Thackeray, he stood above all living English novelists. Perhaps this is rather to the reproach of English fiction of the day than to the renown of Lord Lytton. But even after Dickens and Thackeray and Charlotte Bronte, and later and not less powerful and original writers had appeared in the same field, he still held a place of great mark in literature. That he was not a man of genius is perhaps conclusively proved by the fact that he was able so readily to change his style to suit the tastes of each day. He began by writing of fops and roué of a time now almost forgotten. Then he made heroes of highwaymen and murderers. Afterwards he tried the philosophic and mildly didactic style. Then he turned to mysticism and spiritualism. Later still, 
he wrote of the French Second Empire. Whatever he tried to do, he did well. Besides his novels, he wrote plays and poems, and his plays are among the very few modern productions which managed to keep the stage. He played, too, and with much success at being a statesman and an orator. Not Demosthenes himself had such difficulties of articulation to contend against in the beginning, and Demosthenes conquered his difficulties, while some of those in the way of Lord Lytton proved unconquerable. Yet Lord Lytton did somehow contrive to become a great speaker, and to seem occasionally like a great orator in the House of Commons. He was at the very least a superb phrase-maker, and he could turn to account every scrap of knowledge in literature, art, or science which he happened to possess. His success in the House of Commons was exactly like his success in romance and the drama. He threw himself into competition with men of far higher original gifts, and he made so good a show of contesting with them that in the minds of many the victory was not clearly with his antagonists. There was always, for example, a considerable class, even among educated persons who maintained that Lytton was in his way quite the peer of Thackeray and Dickens. His plays, or some of them, obtained a popularity second only to those of Shakespeare, and although nobody cared to read them, yet people were always found to go and look at them. When Lytton went into the House of Commons for the second time, he found audiences which were occasionally tempted to regard him as the rival of Gladstone and Bright. Not a few persons saw in all this a sort of superb charlatanerie, and indeed it is certain that no man ever made and kept a genuine success in so many different fields as those in which Lord Lytton tried and seemed to succeed. But he had splendid qualities. He had everything short of genius. He had indomitable patience, inexhaustible power of self-culture, and a capacity for assimilating the floating ideas of the hour which supplied the place of originality. He borrowed from the poet the knack of poetical expression, and from the dramatist the trick of construction. From the Byronic time its professed scorn for the false gods of the world, and from the more modern period of popular science and sham mysticism its extremes of materialism and magic and of these and various other borrowings, he made up an article which no one else could have constructed out of the same materials. He was not a great author, but he was a great literary man. Mr. Disraeli's novels belong in some measure to the school of Pelham and Godolphin, but it should be said that Mr. Disraeli's Vivian Gray was published before Pelham made its appearance. In all that belongs to political life, Mr. Disraeli's novels are far superior to those of Lord Lytton. We have nothing in our literature to compare with some of the best of Mr. Disraeli's novels for light political satire and for easy, accurate characterization of political cliques and personages. But all else in Disraeli's novels is sham. The sentiment, the poetry, the philosophy, all these are sham they have not half the appearance of reality about them that Lytton has contrived to give to his efforts of the same kind. In one at least of Disraeli's latest novels, the political sketches and satirizing became sham also. Alton Locke was published nearly thirty years ago. Then Charles Kingsley became to most boys in Great Britain who read books at all a sort of living embodiment of chivalry, liberty, 
and a revolt against the established order of class oppression in so many spheres of our society. For a long time he continued to be the chosen hero of young men with the youthful spirit of revolt in them, with dreams of republics and ideas about the equality of man. Later on he commanded other admiration for other qualities, for the championship of slave systems, of oppression, and the iron reign of mere force. But though Charles Kingsley always held a high place somewhere in popular estimation, he is not to be rated very highly as an author. He described glowing scenery admirably, and he rang the changes vigorously on his two or three ideas, the muscular Englishman, the glory of the Elizabethan discoveries, and so on. He was a scholar, and he wrote verses which sometimes one is on the point of mistaking for poetry. So much of the poet's feeling have they in them. He did a great many things very cleverly. Perhaps if he had done less, he might have done better. Human capacity is limited. It is not given to mortal to be a great preacher, a great philosopher, a great scholar, a great poet, a great historian, a great novelist, and an indefatigable country parson. Charles Kingsley never seems to have made up his mind for which of these callings to go in especially, and being with all his versatility not at all many-sided, but strictly one-sided and almost one-ideed, the result was that while touching success at many points he absolutely mastered it at none. Since his novel, Westward Ho, he never added anything substantial to his reputation. All this acknowledged, however, it must still be owned that failing in this, that, and the other attempt, and never achieving any real and enduring success, Charles Kingsley was an influence and a man of mark in the Victorian age. Perhaps a word ought to be said of the rattling romances of Irish electioneering, love-making, and fighting, which set people reading Charles O'Malley and Jack Hinton, even when Pickwick was still a novelty. Charles Lever had wonderful animal spirits and a broad, bright humor. He was quite genuine in his way. He afterwards changed his style completely and with much success, and will be found in the later part of the period holding just the same relative places in the earlier, just behind the foremost men, but in manner so different that he might be a new writer who had never read a line of the roistering adventures of light dragoons, which were popular when Charles Lever first gave them to the world. There was nothing great about Lever, but the literature of the Victorian period would not be quite all that we know it without him. There are many other popular novelists during the period we have passed over, some in their day more popular than either Thackeray or Charlotte Bronte. Many of us can remember without being too much ashamed of the fact that there were early days when Mr. James and his cavaliers and his chivalric adventures gave nearly as much delight as Walter Scott could have given to the youth of a preceding generation. But Walter Scott is with us still, young and old, and poor James is gone. His once famous solitary horseman has ridden away into actual solitude, and the shades of night have gathered over his heroic form. The founding of Punch drew together a host of clever young writers, some of whom made a really deep mark on the literature of their time, and the combined influence of whom, in this artistic and literary undertaking, was on the whole decidedly healthy. Thackeray was by far the greatest of the regular contributors to Punch in its early days. But the song of the shirt appeared in its pages, and some of the brightest of Douglas Gerald's writings made their appearance there. 
Punch was a thoroughly English production. It had little or nothing in common with the comic periodicals of Paris. It ignored absolutely and of set purpose the whole class of subjects which make up three-fourths of the stock and trade of a French satirist. The escapades of husbands and the infidelities of wives form the theme of by far the greater number of the humorous sketches with pen and pencil in Parisian comicalities. Punch kept altogether aloof from such unsavory subjects. It had an advantage, of course, which was habitually denied to the French papers. It had unlimited freedom of political satire and caricature. Politics and the more trivial troubles and trials of social life gave subjects to punch. The inequalities of class and the struggles of ambitious and vain persons to get into circles higher than their own, or at least to imitate their manners, these supplied for punch the place of the class of topics on which French papers relied when they had to deal with the domestic life of the nation. Punch started by being somewhat fiercely radical, but gradually toned away into a sort of intelligent and respectable conservatism. Its artistic sketches were from the first to last admirable. Some men of true genius wrought for it with the pencil as others did with the pen. Doyle, Leach, and Tenniel were men of whom any school of art might well be proud. A remarkable sobriety of style was apparent in all their humors. Of later years, caricature has absolutely no place in the illustrations to punch. The satire is quiet, delicate, and no doubt superficial. It is a satire of manners, dress, and social ways altogether. There is justice in the criticism that of late more especially the pages of punch give no idea whatever of the emotions of the English people. There is no suggestion of grievance, of bitterness, of passion, or pain. It is all made up of the pleasures and annoyances of the kind of life which is enclosed in a garden party. But it must be said that Punch has thus always succeeded in maintaining a good, open, convenient, neutral ground where young men and maidens, girls and boys, elderly politicians and state matrons, law, trade, science, all sects and creeds may safely and pleasantly mingle. It is not so to be sure that great satire is wrought. A swift or a juvenile is not thus to be brought out, but a votary of the present would have his answers simple and conclusive. We live in the age of punch. We do not live in the age of juvenile or swift. End of section 30. Recording by Pamela Nagami, M.D., in Encino, California, July 2019. End of a History of Our Own Times from the Accession of Queen Victoria to the General Election of 1880, Volume 2, by Justin McCarthy.